eight MotoGP races at Cota, the circuit of the Americas in Texas, and now there have been seven victories for Marc Marquez. A Spaniard took all three wins at the Grand Prix of the Americas at the weekend. After not having raced there since April 2019, the track was bumpier than before, but Marquez rode the Honda Bull to perfection, pulling out an unassailable lead after six laps to make the race his. Championship leader Fabio Quattararo kept his head down and essentially won his own race, which was to score well and be ahead of Peco Bagnaia. The Frenchman second and the Italian third now means that if Quattararo finishes ahead of Banaya at the next race, the championship will go to the Yamaha man. I'm Toby Moody and joining me is Valentin Harunshi and Simon Patterson. I'll go with you, Valentin. What are your first thoughts, first memories from Kota 2021? Uh, that's a bit of a weird one, but... So I know Banyaya finished behind Quartararo and it's you know it it not wasn't a good day for his championship, but I'm I'm just increasingly impressed by how good a choice he's been for Ducati and how, how good a campaign he's having. And this Sunday was also this Saturday, obviously, but also this Sunday was further evidence of that. Very fair. Simon? Uh Mark Marquez surprised me. I genuinely didn't think he had a race win in him given how physical the track was. So fair play. I was wrong. Very fair as well. Uh, Quattararo, for me, his celebration as he came over the line in seconds was as good as a win. I hope the data engineers didn't look at him revving the engine too hard, but we'll leave that one as a mute for the time being. Maybe he didn't expect that he was going to get that second place. But the other thing for me is actually not in MotoGP, and I think we'll all agree about this. We're just thankful that those Moto3 guys are all safe and that race control have taken action in clamping down as a start, at least, after the race on some wayward riding. But we'll get round to that in the middle of this podcast. Simon, you brought up Marc Marquez uh, winning. You thought that he wouldn't win, but he has w- he has won every time at Cota Bar 1. And that's all the way back since uh, to, uh, to 2013. Uh, he didn't start from pole, but his stunning start from the outside of the front row. Well, I, for me, I think he did the best bit of the race from the grid to the first corner, I just... Is he a different mark now? That's another question in itself, isn't it, Simon? That's a whole other question. Um, I don't know if he's a different mark or if he's a mark that's halfway back to being the one that he used to be, maybe, is a different way of putting it. Um, He, You're completely right. He won the race in the first lap. Uh, We knew it would be quite processional this weekend because of... You know, the underlying theme of everything we're going to talk about today is bumps, right? So we knew that because of that, um, it would be a, a single track race to a large extent, especially with that fast and flowing first section of Coda where there's not really many passing opportunities. He knew he had to lead into it, and that gave him a chance to set his own rhythm and, and clear off a little bit. It's exactly actually what he did at Saxon Ring when he won there as well. If you look back, very, very similar race wins in terms of how he actually put them together. Uh, I do think that was the only way he could have won on Sunday. I don't think he'd have been able to manage uh, another aragon Paco bagnaya style battle um, because that would have raised the physicality another level. But really what we saw on Sunday was a race where everyone didn't quite seem to be at the limit. Um, Everyone was trying to keep something a little bit in the bag. People weren't pushing as hard because... Simply put, the track scared them a little bit. In any of his debriefs throughout the weekend, was his confidence always there? Did you maybe get an inkling Friday, Saturday, he's on for this? It, it's hard to tell. Um, Mark is the greatest actor in MotoGP since Valentino Rossi. Um, and it's very, very difficult to tell what he's actually thinking from what is, is what he's saying. Um and if anything, I think that he's probably spent a little bit of time coming into this weekend sandbagging us. Um, because whenever you read some of the some of the lines said, and you know, it was all about managing expectations. There was no mention of the possibility of a race win here because we knew it would be a difficult weekend. Um, so I think, yeah, I think if anything, it's the other way around. Val, do you think this is a return of old Mark or a new Mark? What's your take? Uh, I don't... I think judging from one Cota race, 
just there's no real no real point to it. He won by he won by four seconds. I don't I probably don't actually agree with Simon that was the only way he could have won just because when you win when you win a race by four seconds, that sort of suggests there were a couple of ways to go about it. That suggests that you at least had something a little bit extra, which I think I think was fair enough, even if Fabio didn't go full out and even if, you know, Pecco suffered at the start. I think, you know, the quickest guy won and even if the start didn't go so well, I think he'd still probably find a way back to the front. Is he a different mark, the same mark? I don't know. I've seen, I think we've all seen this race at Kota before, but that's, you know, this track won't be the test. I mean, he's so, so comfortable here. He's so, so comfortable at the at the Saxon ring. Uh, the fact that it didn't physically give him a ton of trouble is is a good sign, but it sort of sounded like he more or less expected it and that he always had something extra on on used tires and ultimately i think from friday practice from the very first moment that on the first on the wet track and then on the dry gripless track he was miles clear of everybody else i mean that's old mark no grip and he's in a league of his own uh, just, i don't think it tells us much apart from yeah, Mark can still win at the Sa- at, at Saxon Rink. He can still win at Kota. Let's let's see what that means for a full season next year when he starts to having to count points. Nearly one at Aragon. So, uh, Simon, you were obviously there. How hot was it? Was it hot? Was it Malaysia hot? Was it bloody hot? Was it what hot? It was Malaysia hot, um, which I never thought we'd see in Texas. It was full on that that sort of. Actually, no, that's not strictly true. It wasn't quite Malaysia hot. It was more Thailand hot, if we're comparing it to another race. Because Burry Ram tends to bring like a drier heat. Uh, and it was like that. It was intense in the sun. Um, I I don't know if it's because we're here at a different time of the year. Because I, I don't know the climactic changes of Central Texas. I don't know if it was a freak weekend of weather. But it you knew going into the weekend that it was going to be hard work whenever you, you sort of got a feel for the, the air temperature in particular. Um, we had that sort of lingering possibility of rain all weekend, which only really happened on one day, but that wasn't really a forecast for rain in hindsight. That was a forecast for thunderstorms because of how hot it was. Um, and yeah, I, I uh, I spoke to Alex Rins. I bumped into him just after the race. Um, first of all, we did his Zoom debrief with the camera switched off because he had no clothes on. And then uh, I spoke to him after the race, bumped into him briefly, and asked him how the race was. And he just did the you know the the, the Spanish Italian the thing finger under the the thumb under the chin thing. But he went all the way back until he was staring at the sky, which was quite a quite a telling explanation of how the race was. Um, I think Peko described it as like Sepang, but with bumps in the press conference. Mm-hmm. So just coming back to Mark, of all the tracks that he's looked strong at, Saxon Ring, Aragon, Austin, has anybody asked him in any of these debriefs about right-handed racetracks? You know, it's all left at the moment. I I had a, a bit of a chat with him yesterday in the press conference about it. Um, I asked where the level was physically, and a few other people asked other things that give us probably our best explanation yet of where exactly he is at. And he essentially, um, it, it, the arm just isn't there yet on right-hand corners. Um, and he straight up admits that there is still work to do and that he doesn't know what stage in the process he's at, that he doesn't know how long it's going to take to get things working right. Um, it's what we've said all along. It's the, the sort of the fine water control that comes right at the end that's missing. It's the, the last few percentage points that he needs to make the big saves and to really, really push. Um, but the, the other thing that he said yesterday that it, it sounded like a little bit of an issue is that, which he's not said before, is there's a, a strength issue as well. And whenever he's trying to almost counter steer, he can't push the bars the way he needs to lever the bike through the corners. Um, but what he did also say was that obviously there are quite a few right-handed corners here in that first fast section and that they didn't feel terrible. Um, and I, I think so the, the way uh, the way I wrote it up last night looking at it, and I still stand by it, is I think we're seeing a step-by-step return to the old Mark Marquez. And 
what we saw in Saxon Ring was him was step one. It was him winning at a track that he loved. That is quite an easy track physically to ride. What we saw yesterday was him winning at a track that he loves that's quite hard physically to ride. So now the next step has to be either he wins at a right-handed track that he doesn't particularly like, or he wins at a left-handed track in a big battle. Because he didn't do that at Aragon when he got beaten by Bagnaya. So he also did say that the, the right-handers here, even though there's a lot of them, that they're not the kind of right-handers that, that really batter his right arm, that he can sort of manage them using the left arm a bit and also just just sort of not using a lot of energy. I, I think there's probably some fairly complicated biology going on there. But that, that does sort of make sense. There isn't there aren't those huge sweeping, super, super difficult right handers, I think, at this track. Uh so yeah, I, it's it's hard to say. It's it's so hard to say because it's it's someone else's body that only the doctors and himself really have an idea of, of what there is. As you say, Simon, he doesn't know how long it'll take to return to, to the level, but also we have to admit we don't know what the level is. There's a very probably decent chance that it's not the level that it used to be because, you know, we aren't eternal and if you take a lot of hits to certain parts of the body at a certain point, they're not going to recover to the same level that they were. I think that's that's fair enough. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's encouraging. It's, uh, it was a lot of right-handers. It was a physically demanding track and he seemed, he seemed fine after the race too. He didn't seem particularly gassed. So clearly it, it probably does help that this place is basically home to him as the Saxon ring, as Aragon. So, you know, that probably makes it all sweeter and easier and mentally a lot more comfortable. Um, but yeah, we still, we just, we have to know it. We have to see a succession of, of different races and when it counts for points, when you can't just go full on at it and then we'll know, I think. So at this point, we're going to have to bring up the whole bump issue. The fact that uh, after Friday, there was a lot of riders saying it was too bumpy. It was unsafe. They might not race and such like there was a rider's. Uh, safety commission obviously on Friday night as there is in every racetrack every motor GP I thought I just got an inkling through your words through the vibe through the internet I wasn't trackside I thought mm, this might go the wrong way come Sunday was there an inkling that there might not have been a race or a bit of a protest I, just, I wouldn't go that far now because even the guys who only a couple of guys really even breached that possibility I think the only the only ones to do it unprompted as a leash, I think, and, and Banyaya maybe to a, to an extent. Uh, so I don't think that was ever a, a real possibility. I think the problem with that kind of thing is even if enough riders believe that maybe they shouldn't be doing it, when you have one or two people who would effectively act as strike breakers, that's all gone. And there were enough enough people on the grid who felt it was you know just about fine or advantageous uh ultimately you know the sunday played out well so that's probably a decent argument in favor of the guys who said it was going to be okay once the bikes were better set up for the for the bumps but at the same time you know i tell you watching watching the suzukis or i should say the suzuki of mir during the weekend over some of the corners was not fun there's not it, it, it looked wrong like it just it, it looked like a MotoGP bike should not look over some of those corners, over a lot of the corners, actually. And some of the other bikes looked a lot better, but uh I just I'm glad we went through this without any sort of major incidents in, in the main class, through especially those through the first lap through the twisty bits when the pack was going through. I'm glad everything went went okay there. Uh not particularly keen to to repeat this type of experience and going by the ultimatum of sorts that MotoGP riders put through for any future Kota visits, it's clear neither neither are they. Yeah, the Bagnaya admitted as much afterwards. He said that uh, you know the, any chance for a strike just wasn't really possible um, because he knew that there would be others that would go against it even if he wanted to, and one of them was on the other side of the garage. You know, the, the most vociferous was probably Jack Miller. Um, the, the, the only condition I think in which we would have had a strike based on what I've seen in the past was if someone had been badly hurt. 
leading into the race because that's the only rider strike I've seen in my time here was Silverstone 2018 and it was because Tito Rabat smashed his leg so badly in that FP4 session. If uh, if Tito hadn't been injured, I still think we would have had a race that day. Just the, honestly, motorsport just doesn't have a particularly good history for successful rider or driver strikes. F1, a little bit more experience in that regard. In MotoGP, apart from, you know, the Silverstone race not happening. The one I remember is I researched, was researching past 500cc seasons. And I think it was a race in, I want to say Argentina. Uh, but there, I'm, was I'm the not, Mizano, there was the Mizano. No, no, it was, it, was a, it was a while ago. And I think it yeah. was, I think it might have been, I think it might have been Argentina. I'm not entirely sure where the race was. No. Was it was it the Brazil Brazil there was certainly a Mizano. Oh no, it was a Mizano. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. And they all sat out and then I think uh Killy won it. Yeah, so Killy was the one guy who didn't sit out. He was the one effectively the strike breaker. And he he was at the receiving end of sarcastic applause from I think either Eddie Lawson or somebody like that. says on this contract here, if you win, we'll give you a bonus. And he won the race. So yeah. So that was and that was and obviously that sort of experience shows how how easy it is for the dominoes to fall it's remarkable that in that race nobody else of the of the works riders went for it but kelly and here obviously a lot of there were more than enough guys willing to to have a go no matter what what the others say and there wouldn't been because no big crashes and no big accidents have happened it's really sort of you don't have the public opinion sort of that would scare them out of it like until there's a big crash, you can't really be blamed for having a go or for for wanting to race. That's sort of how we look at it most of the time. And ultimately, the race played out fine. So it's not to say that they were unreasonable. I mean, ultimately, it's they're the ones who are risking, and they judged it to be an acceptable level of risk. And on this Sunday, on this Sunday afternoon, it worked out. So yeah. It certainly worked out for Quattararo over the moon with his second place. Uh... He later said he was going to give it a go to see if he could overhaul Mark, but he couldn't. But that second place was as good as a win, as I said earlier. He said later, this is the best second place that I have ever got in my life. It's even better than a victory, to be honest, because I'm getting closer to my dream. I think that we are starting to think in a different way now because the championship's end is getting closer. This is the first time I'm really talking about it. Things are looking good. Yeah, things are things are looking good. And I think this result was maybe slightly more important than the the gap suggests because it doesn't feel like a lot has changed because Fabio is still a lot ahead and ultimately the margin for for Pecco to claw back those points is increasingly minimal but there's also the point I think a lot of us myself certainly a lot of us are expecting a 25 in Bagnaia's column when we return to Mizano because he's electric there and I think I think Fabio is only all too aware that's Pecco's really, really good there in that ultimately, if he really faltered at Cota and then Bagnaio won at Misano, then yeah, he'd still lead the championship by a fair bit, but the, the final two weekends would get would risk being not very comfortable. And right now, right now it looks comfortable, even if Bagnaia puts up 25 at Misano, the title should still be sealable in a normal, sensible race at, at Portimao, which I think is the way he's looking at it. So yeah, it, was it as good as a win? Yeah, basically. I mean, when you when you when you're a ch- championship contender and you the only guy you lose to is a guy who's not in the championship, I mean, you have to love that. Yeah, I. It wasn't necessarily the day that he won the championship, but it was probably his last chance to have lost the championship this year. Um, it was a day when the track was very very treacherous. When it was, uh, it would have been easy to have made a mistake. And where Bagnaia on paper coming into the race looked really strong. Um, so, you know, it, it's not, it would have been probably a more realistic set of circumstances before the race to have seen Bagnaia won the race by five seconds and maybe Quadraro ended in the gravel than to see Bagnaia end where he did and Mark end in the podium. So uh, I think that's where the relief came from. I thought Bagnaia was going to win it. Yeah, I thought he did. And then before the first corner, 
I had my mind changed, but there we go. <laughs> uh, Peko was on a hat-trick coming into the Texas weekend. He did the hat-trick in qualifying, from, but from pole position, he couldn't quite turn it around for the race. At bad early laps, he had to play a lot of catch-up. Um, teammate Miller let him through. What was the kind of chitter-chatter in and around the paddock after that? Oh, the chitter-chatter from, from Miller and one that I maybe sort of you could doubt a little bit but there's no real need, reason to so miller gets the pit board that he has banyai behind him and he immediately goes like okay go through and even very very theatrically waves and pass but there was no indication from miller post-race that there was any sort of team order or agreement or that he was unhappy about it in any sort of way and ultimately miller's pace after banyai passed him shows why I don't think Banyaev put up a huge fight against Jack in the early stages of the race. I think he let him go and let him have a go up front and maybe disrupt Quartararo. Um, that didn't happen. And Jack's pace started to fade, as it very often does in MotoGP after the halfway points in the race. We see that a fair amount of times. Um, I know team orders in MotoGP are faux pas and really just sort of handing over your position nobody in motorsport particularly likes to see that but it's just it was sensible there's a sensible way to play out can't be can't be pleasant for for jack miller but i can see why he had to do it i can see why banya is thankful and i can see what i can see and what i'm i'm increasingly it's just i as my intro alluded to how good has banya's progression been in MotoGP? I, I honestly, after his rookie season, I think a few of us were wondering whether he's toast. And now we can be sort of disappointed that he didn't win a third race in a row. And he's blitzed pole position again. And Ducati, bravo for sticking with him and bravo for sticking him on the bike this year, even if Dovizioso's exit played a part. Just, you know, it's great. It's a great, great story this season. Texas 2021 a lot of the talk was about the track surface. Just let's revisit that subject for a moment. Uh, Simon, what was decided that will happen for next year? Is it going to be resurfaced in areas, track, what? The bare minimum, according to the writers, that was agreed was that they'll resurface from turn two to turn 11, uh, which is the bump, the, the long, fast, flowing section, which is the bumpiest section. Um, we all know that whenever someone like a race circuit that isn't exactly flush with cash says that this is the bare minimum. It really means this is what we're going to do. Um, so unfortunately, I think that is the only section that's going to be resurfaced. And there are problems elsewhere. Um, as we saw yesterday with people getting caught out with bumps and stuff. The, the underlying issue, um, however, is that this isn't a problem with a bad surface. This isn't Silverstone in 2018 where they resurfaced it and made a mistake. The issue here is the Texan undersoil. It is it. So someone sent me a link yesterday to uh, an article about how apparently it can retain up to seventy five percent of its volume in water. The soil here. So they've just obviously had a really, really, really extreme winter here, with uh, that cold snap that saw like the whole state without power, etc., etc., etc. Then they had a really wet spring. And that soil underneath the track has just been retracting and contracting and moving all year with no track activity on top. And it's just, it's completely not where it was the last time we came here. The, the soil underneath the track is not here. It's also worth noting that the soil that's here isn't necessarily a natural feature. Uh, before they built this place, the circuit was flat. They built turn one. They built the hill that turn one is on with reclaimed soil. So that does not make for natural drainage, basically. So the, the whole track base is suspect. And I think resurfacing a few turns is, uh, well, really, it's, um, it's a stick and plaster. And I don't know if this is something that we're going to be debating again in a year's time or in two years' time if there is a long-term solution to the problem. There are cleverer people, of course, than us three to, 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 to laser level it and Jana Zeffrelli and all those kind of people. They will, they will not just plane it and put something else on top. They'll, they'll take out the bumps, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
There was a really interesting thing that I experienced at X Games, which was held there at the track a few years back. And I was commentating the flat track. So they made a little flat track track, and it was essentially the other side of the penultimate corner as a left, the last corner as a left, but it was over there, the outside of the track and over there. So in other words, it was lower down than the rest of the circuit. And we had a bit of rain for an hour or so, and it was a complete bog. It was a complete bog. I was like, what's going on? We went over in a golf cart buggy and whatever, and it was just like, whatever. We lost the broadcast because it was underwater. It was a mess. We had to fudge it, do it another day. I can't remember the ins and outs. But I was I had a bit of a lesson that day. It doesn't drain very well. And that's all part and parcel of what you said, Simon, about soil, 75% such like. So, yeah, there's a bit of work to do there. And what money they've got in the coffers, they've got to work out. Now then. The other subject that I touched on at the top of the broadcast was the Moto3 accidents that happened. Huge accidents. Onku, Alcoba, Mino, Acosta. Now, Onku has been suspended for two Grand Prix after swerving down that back straight, one of the longest straights in the entire championship, as we all know. But there was a telling line from Valentino after the race, there is a need for serious action because the situation is completely out of control. He means Moto3 and close racing. But a, a great line here from a wise owl. Motorcycling is a dangerous sport and it becomes even more so with certain attitudes. You have to have respect for yourself and for your rivals because you're playing with the lives of young people. The penalty-handed to Dennis Onku was severe, uh, but I don't think it was necessarily fair. I understand why he was penalised, um, but the problem is this is not new behaviour. This is behaviour that we have seen in Moto3 for two years now, and everything that the MotoGP stewards do is reactive. They are never proactive. They never move to stop something before the accident happens. The, 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 the bans for this should have happened two years ago and then we would have never been in this situation today. Um, and, and that is their, their, their biggest failing. And to go back to what you've just said, that Valentino quote about having respect for yourself and those around you, these guys are kids. They're full of piss and vinegar. They're full of fury. They're full of blah, blah, blah. Sometimes there needs to be a more responsible adult above them to look after them to an extent, to make them realize that they do need to show a bit of respect. And you would expect that to be the, the Ray Stewart's. And I, I genuinely, I think that they have failed at this. Um, someone asked in the Moto3 press conference yesterday, they asked John McPhee what he thought in the accident. And John said, look, I literally... Straight off the podium, I haven't seen the accident. I don't watch the replays of big crashes when there's a red flag in the garage, blah, blah, blah. But then he said, but I'll tell you one thing, having just been through that race, the single biggest issue in Moto3 at the minute is the way that everyone's weaving around in the streets. So without having seen the cause of the crash, John hit it on the head, yet no one has been penalised for it until it caused a crash. So, um, yeah, I... I don't disagree with the on-coup penalty, but I don't agree with the way that we got to giving it to him. My my view of it is sort of similar, but sort of different in that I think we all know, and there's there's absolutely no question about it, imagine that same situation, but so Dennis Onchu swipes at, at Jeremy Alcoba, Jeremy Alcoba falls with the bike, and nobody ramps off that bike, everybody just avoids them. That is not a two-race ban. The two-race ban doesn't exist at that point. One rider has fallen. There was one crash. Everybody's avoided it. It's fine. The question is, is it okay for stewards to judge the consequences? Because ultimately, I'm sure there were swipes on, on the straights that were... I mean, we've seen Jack Miller swipe at, at, at John Mir effectively in Qatar. And the penalty for that was deadly squat. So, I'd, I don't know. Uh Ultimately, I think it is good that there was a hefty penalty because it was a, a, a big crash and a, and a bad decision and a bad movement, whatever the reasoning was behind Onchu's movement. But 
it, it, it for me it all goes back to that age old philosophy question of whether it is okay that the consequences of the accident play such a big role in the penalty that's handed out. I I don't know. It's it's a tough one, but I again it's 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 weird to me that Onchu's penalty was aggravated by the fact that Alcoba's bike uh, became a ramp for two other bikes. Yeah. The- there's two things to say, you know, Valentin. If if Onchu hadn't knocked the the other guy off, then the other guys wouldn't have. I mean, the guy on the left was it Mino went to the moon. I mean, I mean, it was just, you know, I've been there commentating. You've been there in the press office. You've been there watching on television. You all go, holy smoke, is this one of these moments? Uh, and it's pretty chilling. Um, the answer is what's coming back to what Simon said. You know, two years ago this, two years ago that. You're absolutely right. They should have nipped it in the bud. It is a bit reactive, Simon, because, and I'm agreeing with you, that they've, they've banned him from a couple of Grand Prix because they had to go, right, they've got to put the hammer down. Stop. Stop this. You know, other choices. Do they, pan, do they ban more people more often? Do they stop them from qualifying and they put them at the back of the grid? Do they start dishing it out a bit more rather than the odd thing on a Saturday night on an email at 8 o'clock in the press office or something or other? You know, take away the start money from the team. Don't point, no point in finding them. There's no point in taking points away from them. Ban these people and don't let the team replace the rider because then they get the start money with the replacement rider. So you've, you've really got to start to, to, to squash it and, and flatten out the pyramid in some way. You know, even if it's as petty, and don't laugh, as stopping their passes working and limiting the number of passes for the team. Now, the, the guys riding won't understand all of that, but the team will to try and infiltrate the rider's young, very imaginative mind at that point. The problem is that what we've seen consistently, um, and about it's about the only thing we have seen consistently from the Stuarts, is that the, there is no such thing as precedence. They, they, I genuinely believe that we will go to Mazzano and there will be a Moto3 race and people will weave about in the streets and as long as they don't cause an accident, they won't get penalised for it. Because that's the way that they operate. That's what we keep seeing from the Stuarts. You know, we we some people have been calling for that race bans are the only way to deal with with dangerous Moto Three touring, um, in qualifying and practice, and they've ignored it. They've come up with a series of sanctions that you know sometimes they're extreme, sometimes they're nothing. But no one has ever been banned for a race from it until Yuki Kuni caused a crash in Mizano for doing it. And then suddenly the race banned. But then we went straight back to normal this week and no one got penalised for doing anything like it. So there has to be a point where we accept that the potential consequences of an action have to be taken into account whenever it comes to handing out a penalty. Because otherwise, we're just going to keep penalising people for causing big crashes after the crash has already happened or, you know, worst case scenario after someone's already dead. We can talk between the three of us, journalists, fans, reporters on MotoGP, all of us, all in one. We, The thing that struck me was Sunday evening reading the riders' reactions to the Moto3 accident. You know, riders who've had big accidents, uh, gone through Moto2, into MotoGP, trying to wrestle a 300 horsepower, 160 kilo thing that's trying to kill them at every corner. And they now at 28 know what they were like at 17. And they can look back on it, as we all do when we grow up, and go, that was a bit of a stupid thing to do when I was younger. And they can see it happening on Tracking Mudder 3. So those were the words that really kind of hit me yesterday, about uh, which were from the, from the Mudder GP riders. But as you say, Simon, will it go upstairs? That's another discussion. Upstairs being race control. Uh, not an easy scenario. And I... We haven't come up with a solution to prevent it rather than to react to it. But they just, in my view, start dishing those bands out a bit more often. Uh, it's the only way to get through to people. And teams can argue all they like. The FIM and Dorna are ultimately in control. Stop. OK, let's hope that we don't have another accident like that again, because it was just terrifying. Um, Mino, how he got away with it, well, we'll never know. Um Back to MotoGP. Fourth was Alex Rins uh, for Suzuki. He held it together, maybe becoming a dad. It's all about new beginnings, isn't it? <laughs> did he Did he know how he held it together? 
Um, not crashing? No, not really. Not really. Yeah, basically, um, he did the sort of Alex Rins race that he does whenever things are right. But I think Alex's biggest problem is maybe that he doesn't know what the difference is. He doesn't know what makes one of those races versus what makes the race where he crashes out of the same position. Yeah, it's, you know, uh, ultimately, I think it does deserve to be highlighted that he did a really good job because clearly the 2021 Suzuki is not as competitive as the 2020 Suzuki. This is a track that Alex clearly gels with and he had he had mere covered basically all weekend, I would say. And he, he rode a, a calm race to what would have been fifth if uh, Jorge Martin didn't run out of juice basically towards the end. Uh, but fifth is what that bike was was capable of in that race, and fifth would still have been three places higher than a penalised Mir. Bastianini over the last three races has had a sixth, a third, a sixth. What's been the key for the Italian? Do you think? I think it's it's, it's just familiarity. It's just time of the bike, and things are starting to to come together for him now. Um, it's come at a good time. He looks really really strong at the minute. There is a certain element, of course, that Mizano is Mizano for him. Um, he's a local boy, he spends hours there, blah, blah, blah. And maybe the podium at Mizano has helped the strong results elsewhere by just boosting the confidence and, and making things a little bit easier in the weekend. But I think he's going to go back to Mizano next week, have another good race, and finish out the season really, really strongly. Um, I think it really makes you wonder whether Ducati's strategy to give him another old bike next year, even though it's a year younger, and give Luca Marini a factory bike is the right one. Because um, Luca's just not quite cutting it at the minute the same way. Yeah, I mean, as much as I like Luca, I agree completely that by right, uh, a work spec bike should go to Enea Bastianini, who just looks looks a bit good and seems to... There's probably a common thread here that these have been quite quite physical races. And, you know, at Kota, sort of over the bumps, he seems to have really quite conserved his energy quite well for the end. He seems to be quite a, a bulky guy, if that makes any sense. He seems to be also very comfortable riding a bit wild, and it, it takes being a bit wild to be good at, at Kota, I believe. Uh, he's good. He's just good. He's, he's, you know, there's a lot of longevity to his races now. Uh, already, honestly, even at the start of the season, it was clear that he was going to be capable of some brilliant stuff in MotoGP. I, I tipped him for Rookie of the Year at the start of the season, and that probably, it's probably not quite going his way because of how good Jorge Martin has been. But I'd still, I'd still say he's performed better than people have expected, and he's performed as well as that initial guitar promise has showed. And it's good news for Ducati, but I, I don't know how they're going to hang on to so many good riders long term. Well, we mentioned it in our podcast last time out, that the Ducati young rider scheme is is brimful. They're, uh, they're doing all right at the moment, aren't they? Uh, talking about Jorge Martin, I thought he was going to be on for a third place finish for a bit, but then he slipped. And was it just me? Or did he with some others, with a wicked mind, did he kind of go off track and let Banyaya through without it making it look too obvious? Or am I just scurrilous? You're both shaking your heads. <laughs> I see, I see, yeah, I see myself and Simon shaking our heads just because of the context of, of Jorge's weekends and the fact that, honestly, I think Occam's razor-wise, the, the most obvious explanation is right. If you're going to let... Beko through, even if you want to make it look non-obvious, you wouldn't do it there and you wouldn't do it like that. You wouldn't you wouldn't try to to fake a mistake. I, I can't imagine Jorge Martin agreeing to that. He just doesn't seem like like that kind of guy. He'd want it to make it as obvious as possible. Uh, but he was also just gassed towards the end. Remember, he's still coming back from an injury. He's having some other physical problems out there that maybe make sense as a as a MotoGP rookie. It's, it's a hard race. Everybody got really tired. Clearly, Jorge Martin got really tired. It was, it was obvious towards the end. And 
if that was somehow premeditated, well, it would have been really stupid because it effectively cost him a position relative to Alex Rins because of the long lap penalty. But I, I just don't think it was. I think he was really, really, really gassed. And beyond that, really good race. It's just, uh, you know, I, I'm surprised by myself losing the ability to be surprised by Jorge Martin running up front. Like that's basically, in my mind, that's when you've made it is when your presence at the top of the timesheets no longer elicits any kind of reaction from me. Like, yeah, Jorge Martin, he's up there now. He's a MotoGP star. The the only bit that uh, I think team orders had maybe any effect in that was that maybe he got a little bit spooked whenever he realized it was Bagnaia behind him, realized that he had to be very careful. Maybe it took away a little bit of attention from what he was doing, and maybe it just caused an error to creep in. That's a speculating, but that's the only way in which I think that the the sort of the championship of position affected his actions in any way. Miller versus Mir, the 2021 MotoGP hate match, is always going to be good fun, isn't it? Um, uh, I did enjoy Jack grabbing Mir by the chin bar on the cooling down lap and having a go. Shame we couldn't hear what was being said, but I can only imagine. <sighs> I I think even Mir didn't quite understand what, what it was that Miller was saying, so I presume there was a lot of heavily Aussie-accented uh, local swearing going on, but I, you know, I couldn't imagine. I, I'd like to preface all this by saying that it's a, it's a shame that Mir's title defense ends like this, because I think actually it's been pretty valiant. I think he's been a very reliable rider on a package that's not title caliber anymore. I think he did a good job this season. That said... Uh, I'm not normally not one to criticize Joanne because he's very well spoken. He was again well spoken on Sunday about it, but I think his point that if you penalize moves like this, you're just gonna ruin racing. Nonsense. Just, just not even, not even a little bit reasonable. I don't see how he came to that conclusion at all. He barged Jack Miller out of the way and got the position. That Bastianini got through both of them is completely irrelevant. I think. Race Direction had no choice but to demote him a position back, and I, I can't possibly see... If he's apologetic for that move, then he should also accept that Miller has been moved back ahead because that overtake was not on. It was not a not a legitimate overtake. It should not have stood. Don't see any problem with that. I think Miller was well within his right to be mad. Uh, as much as the Qatar thing is still in the back of my mind, this is obviously, very obviously, the one case where Jack was, was in the right. I think uh, what that showed us is the limitations of the Suzuki. It showed us why Mir's title defense hasn't gone the way that it should have. Um, he needed to make that move. He needed to make that sort of aggressive pass just to make a pass stick. And uh, yeah, that is kind of the story of his year, really. He is overriding a bike that isn't performing as well as it did last year. And that forces errors. He's, he's not a dirty writer. He's an aggressive writer, but he's not a dirty writer. And um, that those kind of moves aren't really his thing because he normally has the ability to make them cleaner than that, even if they might have been, you know, the intention wasn't much different. We've got used to Alessia Spargaro mixing it towards the front, but Cota in 2021 wasn't good. He had five crashes. What was the word of what went wrong this weekend? For some reason, that Aprilia just was not working with the bumps. They they just could not get it comfortable in the bumps. Um, obviously, they only had one bike there because of Maverick Vinales's expected decision to withdraw from the weekend following the, the death of his cousin, tragically, last weekend in World Superbikes. Um, and, and I think with one machine's worth of data, a very, very, very different Aprilia from the last one that raced here two years ago, and uh, something that just fundamentally didn't seem to be working with it. Um, Alicia's crash in the race almost felt inevitable. Uh, it was his fifth crash of the weekend, which is not like Alicia. I think he said he had, had like four crashes up to this point this season and then did five in a weekend, which really just, you know, it it, it is the fundamental thing with Aprilia and with KTM to a lesser extent still. And, and even, I suppose, to Suzuki in some ways, other manufacturers now, to be consistent, to fight for championships, you have a bike that works everywhere. And when you're coming up through the field, it's still quite common to have a bike that only works somewhere. 
and all you can do is make it sure that there's like one or two tracks less where your bike doesn't work every year and I think we find the one where the Aprilia really 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 doesn't work I think uh, obviously the the awful awful loss of, of Dean Berta meant that I think both of us were quite relieved that Maverick wouldn't have to race this weekend that you know he was he decided and that he was allowed to to take some time off and to not face the media and face the cameras and all that I think that's that's just really good but from purely sporting perspective I think it would have been really really curious to see how how Maverick goes on this bike that's new to him at a track where he's been pretty handy how he manages with the bumps because for Alicia's part I'm not even sure there's like a ton to to take out from there because it just felt like just felt like it really spiraled from him basically right away I don't think the pace was quite there at any point and obviously the bike just couldn't stay upright <laughs> for most of it so yeah let's let's see if that's because we've seen a couple of times this season that somebody has one really bad weekend and then the form just goes like it's just gone for not no any particularly obvious reason just you take you take one knock in terms of a bad weekend you you really struggle to come back from that when I'm saying that, I mean like I'd say Miguel Oliveira and Zarco come to mind, but I'm I'm sure there are others this season to maybe lesser extent. Uh, let's let's see if if that might at all be the case for Alaysia. I really hope not. I and I I don't have any reason to suspect it, but it was it's just a just a miserable weekend. He called it a nightmare in two separate press appearances, and yeah, it was. You mentioned Juan Zarco. Uh, we always thought that sustaining a title challenge was going to be difficult, even though I personally held on to that glimmer of a hope that he would get a race victory at some point throughout this season. But um, did you kind of think it would drift away as it has? It's such a such a shame in my view. What's your view, Simon? Yeah, I think it's pretty inevitable, really, to be perfectly honest. Um, I thought this was how it was going to go. Um, I've said all along I don't think it's sustainable to put together a, a title challenge in a satellite team just because of resources. Um, and I think what we've seen with Zarco is kind of once once the the title challenger status was cracked, it was never going to come back. Um, it was a once and done thing. Um, and once he had those few bad races and it just faded away a little bit, then, then he's just another rider in the field again. Um, and, and that's, you know, Sunday was unfortunate. He made a mistake. He, uh, he got caught out with a bit of a rookie error, really, that, that to be perfectly honest, the least or the most experienced of Ducati six riders shouldn't have made. Um, but it happened and these things happen in racing. And, you know, I, I still think his goal for the remainder of the year is to try and win a race, not to fight for a championship like it ever was. Mm, sure sure it's uh it's a shame it's gone away uh, it's a shame uh also you know another one who's got some spark uh, uh takanakagami another race where he looked as if he'd got the speeds looking feisty but that's the problem right there did he throw away another chance by overthinking it top bloke that he is we all love him but Val, what's your take? So Takanakagami is a much better MotoGP rider than I expected him to be when he was coming in, and he's been a, a pleasure to have on the grid, and he's, he's very exciting, and the fact that he doesn't have a podium yet is a really Crime. weird anomaly, <laughs> yeah, because he's, he's, he's fast enough, certainly, but sort of feels like like we've been here before, like he's hit some sort of weird ceiling where if he gets too fast, then he crashes. And I know that that sounds that sounds logical, but no, it's like if his performance level is a bit higher than it usually is, then a crash is coming. Like that, that feels like a pattern that maybe I'm being, maybe I'm fooling myself into seeing a pattern there, but it, it, it feels like something. And ultimately, I don't know if he needs to do a bit more now at this point to ensure a longer term future in MotoGP, considering other Japanese talent seems to be potentially coming for that speed. Uh, Davizioso, uh, can we read anything into his 13th position? Um, or was he so far back behind the bulk of the pack? What, 25 seconds back? Um, what what was the word from the Italian side of the Patronus garage? Or the other Italian side, should I say? Sorry, Freudian <laughs> slip. I actually think that was quite a good result for him. 
Um, he is there to test the bike, not to race it. And yet he delivered the team's best result since uh, since Rossi was eighth in that wet race in Austria. Um, he yeah he did a, a reasonable job there, and to be honest, he's got back to pace quicker than I expected him to. Uh, whenever you look at all the other guys that have rode that bike this year, and there have been a long list of people on that bike this year, uh, he has definitely come in as the replacement, done the best job quickest. So yeah, it actually I think it bodes quite well for next year. Because Simon was quite downbeat on on Dovey's return at, at many other points, I was expecting to hear that he wasn't too impressed this weekend either. I was expecting to come in and, and defend Dovey, and I've been <laughs> robbed of that chance because I, I agree completely. Like, just absolutely, <laughs> I, I'm reasonably impressed, and the fact that he is on a, on a worse bike than Rossi but has proven an immediate instant upgrade like this, that's pretty good. It's not like... It's not incredible, but it's it's good. It it makes the whole project seem sensible and interesting. It, it makes me more excited about seeing Dovi on that bike next year. We'll uh, look forward to that. Now, uh, a lot of people, a lot of our listeners are on Twitter, and some of you may have seen a bit of Twitter traffic between Simon uh, Patterson here on this podcast and Dr. Martin Rains. And Dr. Martin Rains used to put together all the statistics for the MotoGP paddock. He started it with Dennis Noyers when I was in the commentary box with him back in 1996 and he used to fax Dennis. Fax Dennis. Get that? Yes. Um, oh, you know, well, it's the 20th race since this and it's the 48th race since something else and whatever. And Dennis pushed for Doc Martin, as we called him, to then get paid by Dorna and he produces all these statistics and they are fantastic. He doesn't do it now. He stood back, but he still drops the odd good tweet out, as you discovered, Simon, because he said, had Barry Sheen had ridden as long as Valentino Rossi, then Sheen would have still been racing when Rossi started in 1996. How good was that tweet? It was brilliant. It, it just shows the length of that guy's career. And I mean Valentino Rossi, not Dr. Martin Renz. Um <laughs> it, 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 you lose sometimes just how long he has been at the top end of the sport and being competitive there. Um, and uh, yeah, that that sort of nicely brought it into place, didn't it? Just how just how long he's been there, and there'll be kids, you know, in in years to come, there will be kids who say who will be saying, oh, "I was in Moto Three when Valentino Rossi was there," mm. you know, when he was still in Moto GP, like. The length, the length of people that his career has covered is just yeah, it's incredible. It is quite something. I it made me. Smile. We we should probably count at some point how many racers, how many riders he's raced against in the premier class. It's it's going to be hundreds, high hundreds. Uh, no. <laughs> None of us have the work hours for that. There's absolutely no chance. <laughs> and on the eighth day, God created. Yes. Uh, um, so in the meantime, we have still got three races still to go in 2021. Mizano 2 on October the 24th, and then back-to-back races, Algarve, Portugal, and Valencia, November the 7th and 14th. Keep in touch with the-race.com for news and the other podcasts online that are all on our website. The latest Formula One pod- podcast covers Porsche, Audi and Formula One engines in 2026. Bring Back V10s has covered BAR's first season. And if you're into old Formula One, there's a fascinating chat in there with Adrian Reynard and the politics of what happened with BAT. F1 designer Gary Anderson covers technical aspects of Formula One. And there's also Formula E, eSports and IndyCar that are all covered. In the meantime, we will be back with our podcast after a couple of weekends off. Simon's going to come back this side of the pond. And on October the 24th, we will have our next race in Mizano. We will be recording the day after. From Valentin Harunchi, from Simon Patterson, and from myself, Toby Moody, enjoy your time off, and we will speak to you all in a couple of weeks. Goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.